0: If you have your Bibles, would you open up to 1 Kings chapter 19? What I'd like to do is I want to talk about our evangelizing or how we share our hope with people around us. To start reading at verse 9, let me set the context. This is the prophet Elijah. And Elijah just had a very trying experience where he took on several prophets, hundreds of prophets, of Baal, And they had a contest, and he won the contest. But after he won the contest, the king and the queen, Jezebel, hated him, and they wanted to kill him, so he took off running. And when he took off running, he isolated himself, and he's sitting in a cave. And I want you to know his response, but I also want you to pay particular attention to God's response. And he, that's Elijah, came hither unto a cave, and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? In other words, Elijah, why are you holed up in this cave? You got work to do. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he was pretty convinced that, that was, it was all up to him, and if he didn't preserve himself, there would be no one else. Verse 11. And he said, this is God speaking, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord pass by, And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Can you imagine that? Elijah, get yourself out of this cave. Go stand on top of the mountain and watch. And there was an earthquake, and God said, Nope, that's not what I want you to pay attention to. There's a wind. No, that's not what I want you to pay attention to. There was a fire, a big force. No, I don't want you to pay attention to that. And after the fire, a still, small voice. Isn't that interesting? How did God get Elijah's attention? And it was a still, small voice. Think about it. How would God get your attention? How would you get someone else's attention whom you love very much? Sometimes a still small voice is the best approach. I never saw anyone converted by shouting. I never saw anyone converted by an argument. I've never seen anyone converted by um, exceptional oratory skills. Just a simple small voice. And Elijah wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him, and he said, What doest thou here, Elijah? Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that's what we just saw in verse 9. And notice Elijah's response. I have been very jealous for the Lord of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thy altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Does that sound familiar? Does that, that, that doesn't sound like one of those little dolls you got in the 60s where you pulled the ripcord and the same words came out. You know, that's probably us more times than we care to admit. We've got this story conjured up in our mind the way truth is, and that's what comes flying out. Just pull the ripcord and let it fly. What do you think God's going to do right now? Verse 15. The Lord said, Go return to Damascus, and when thou comest to Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshai, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abim Ohla, shalt thou anoint him to be prophet in thy room, and it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hezel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall slay, Yet I have left me seven thousand men in Israel. So what was Elijah's problem? Elijah's problem was he felt all alone. And you know what God did after the still small voice? He started taking care of his needs. He gave him some friends. He says, here, go anoint a king over Syria. Go anoint a king over Israel. Go anoint a new priest. And by the way, here's 7,000 extra besides. He gave him what he needed. So how do we share hope? He took care of Elijah's needs. He gave him the still, small voice, and he took care of Elijah's needs. One of the things that got me changing gears was um, during the week, actually, my daughter-in-law, Claire, um, texted me, and, and she passed along some very good news. This is Veterans Week coming up, and as you I've shared the story, I've got an uncle, Lincoln, that was killed in Korea. And uh, just a couple of months before Lincoln was born, I was going through my mom and dad's basement, and I came across all these letters that he wrote to my grandmother when he was in Korea. And they're all stacked up right there, so Claire can, Lincoln can take them home and read them. But those were one of those still small voice experiences in my life. And I don't know if you would read those letters, it would have the same impact on you. But when I read those letters, I was about 34 years old. I was doing very well in my career. I was married. I had my second son was on the way very, very shortly. And all of a sudden I'm reading these letters. Oh, and I'd been converted and I've been a member of a church for about six years and been reading and, and, and advancing in my quote unquote spirituality. And all of a sudden, I read all these letters from a 22-year-old boy who was less spiritualized or religionized than I was, and he showed more fruits of the Spirit. And I was embarrassed, and those letters was that still, small voice that absolutely shook my world. When I came out, I was red-eyed, and my late wife, Melanie, said, What's wrong? Five days later, she said, You're different. I mean, it had that kind of impact on me. So my point is, is I don't know of more than a half a dozen experiences like that in my life. I'm not here to push experiential religion, you know me better than that. But that's something that really shook my world. So what I would like to do is I would like to encourage you, the way that you share the gospel and the way that affects people is probably a little bit different than we when we go into automatic pilot. So what I'd like to do is I wanna share with you three lessons that I've made, two I've already made, one I'm gonna make on Tuesday night. And I wanna talk to you about these lessons. I wanna accomplish a couple things with these. I still represent this church and I'm still accountable to the church and I want you to know what I'm up to. So that's one thing I wanna do. But the other thing is, is I want you to take a look At how I'm trying to employ this, and and successfully, unsuccessfully, I just want to show you what my intent is. So what I like to do is I'm going to switch gears, and I'm going to show you a couple of the presentations that were made this week. And I'm going to go back to Tuesday, so let's go with that one. These are all sermons you've heard, but I've adapted them. So if you think about it, go back to Tuesday morning at about 8.15. I had 15 minutes to talk to, I don't know, 100, 150 students. And as I was speaking to them, this was the message I delivered. As I spoke to them, I was thinking not of my fellow teachers. I was not thinking of my people back home. I was not thinking of people on the outside. I was thinking of high school students that went to a Christian school whose parents did not like the public education and were paying a significant amount of money to put them in a Christian atmosphere. That's who I was talking to. Y'all, it makes a difference that you consider your audience when you share. This is the lesson, and and you've seen some of this before, but I've tried to tailor it to my audience. And you think, Brother Dolph, give us scripture. When Jesus talked to a fisherman, he talked about fish. When he talked to a farmer, he talked about plants. When he talked to a rancher, he talked about animals. When he talked to a banker, he talked about money. There's your scripture. I want you to notice in this message, there's some doctrine here that they've probably never heard or thought about, even though they're going to a Christian school and a lot of them go to church on Sunday. So I'm not blasting them. I'm not the earthquake. I'm not the fire. I'm not the wind. I'm trying to be that still, small voice and plant a seed of truth and let them work on it because I can't change them. That's a God thing. You know those letters of my Uncle Lincoln that I read? I pretty much guarantee you, if I read them 10 years early, they wouldn't have the impact, or if I read them 10 years later, they wouldn't have the impact. At that moment, at that time, that just plowed me under. Oh, okay. well, i got to tell you the rest of that story. Last summer, when I went home in Michigan for a family reunion, my mother gave me three medals that my Uncle Lincoln had earned while he was in Korea. He was given a purple heart. He was given a silver star, which I didn't realize how big of a deal a silver star was. Brother Andrew just gave me the thumbs up. And he was given the equivalent of a silver star from the country of Korea. Okay? And when you get a silver star, it's usually by a pretty big write-up by your officer that says what happened. So I've got the silver star, and I wanted to know the story behind it, so I started making my phone calls. And unfortunately, what happened was is it was kept in some kind of building in St. Louis, and in 1972, the building burned down. So I don't have it. But there's the equivalent of the Korean silver star... And Claire, my daughter-in-law, went to college with someone from Korea who when they get done with their graduate degree or their graduation degree, they have to go back and serve in the Army for a couple years. It's just what they do. So he's over there and she contacted him and she says, hey, can you do some research on the Silver Star by Lincoln Painter in 1952, 1953? So he turned loose on it and she showed me the text. And she says, she showed me the text and he says, I'm on it. And he said, by the way, thank you for a service. Because when he and his friends came over, he says, I got to grow up free. Isn't that cool? But let's go back to the high school kids. And I'm talking to them, and I want them to know who they are. I'm talking about people that are toted to church, people that are going to a Christian school, they even have a Bible class, and I want to know who they are. I want them to know I'm talking about them, I'm talking about myself, I'm talking about their parents, I'm talking about their teachers. I want them to know that. And the Bible says that God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them, and he created them very good. And you'll think that's us. Well, that used to be us. I want to tell them who they are now. So, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he said, Thou shalt not eat. But guess what Adam did? He ate. He ate. And when he ate, what was very good I'll become very bad. Man was created in God's image. God is the three-part being. Man is the three-part being, body, soul, and spirit. And when Adam fell, he became corrupt. All three parts became corrupt. And guess what happened? That passed on to all his genetics. So he had some kids, and you know what? He had a God-shaped hole, and he passed on that God-shaped hole to his children and their children, And all 'all, y'all, we all got this, everybody. We got a God-shaped hole. Why? Because it's in the genes. Didn't you know? That's why Jesus had to bypass that nonsense. Because he had to be the perfect offering. That's why God passed the genetics. But every one of us are tainted. We have a God-shaped hole. And I'm not just talking about the people out there. I'm talking about the people in here. I'm talking about your children. I'm talking about your parents. You love them dearly. They're good people, but you know what? They got a God-shaped hole because it's in the genes. And you think, wow, but but I got born again. That fixed it all. No, you're a three-part being that may have done some restoration in the spiritual part, but you still have this body. All you have to do is look in the mirror and see yourself getting older. See, this is great stuff. And what's not turning gray is turning loose, right? And these get cranked up in prescription strength every couple of years. I'm falling apart. Don't say amen too hardly. <laughs> Y'all, I'm talking to high school students. They've never thought like that before. You know what? That is a full meal in and of itself. That is a good discussion. That's something that they need to chew on and they digest before you go too much further. But I wanna talk about, just like God did with Elijah, he gave him something he needed and right then he needed some fellowship. So I needed to give him at least a little bit of a tool. So King Solomon tried to fill his God-shaped hole with many things. And if you have your Bibles, would you just turn to Ecclesiastes chapter two for a second? Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is a chapter that describes all the junk Solomon tried to stuff in his God shaped hole. Let me start reading at verse 3. Oh, by the way, Josiah, are you there? I'm not going to have you read it. What's the first word of verse 3? I? Good. How about verse 4? 5? 6? 7? 8? Guess what, he mixed it up in nine, so I. And then 10, then I. 12, and I. You know, usually when you're talking that way, things don't turn off too well. And you read this thing, and you see all the things Solomon tried to jam in his God-shaped hole, and he put in, tried to put in wine and knowledge and wealth and palaces and gardens and pools and accomplishments and servants and animals and singers and women and musicians and lands. And after he tried to stick all those things in a God-shaped hole, guess what? He was miserable. Verse Paraphrasing 10 and 11, I acquired everything and anything my heart desired. No joy was withheld. I looked on all my works, and all was vanity and vexation of the Spirit. He said he was a mess after trying to put all that stuff in his God-shaped hole. Well, that's just a Bible story, and that happened 3,000 years ago, and that would never happen today. Wrong. Solomon wasn't the only person that tried to put stuff in his God-shaped hole. Ted Turner. Everybody know who Ted Turner is? He's a billionaire. He's a modern-day billionaire who tried to put his God-shaped hole with really, really expensive stuff. Now, I might try to put sports in my God-shaped hole so I'll go buy a new set of golf clubs. You know what he did? He bought the Atlanta Braves. And just to boot, he bought the Atlanta Hawks, too. Let's look at Ted Turner. He's the one that founded CNN. And then after he found it, he sold it for billions of dollars and he had power and he had fluids, he had claim. he was on the cover of all these magazines. And he had starlets and movie stars and divas hanging on his arm, every pretty woman, he had the pretty women. He had palaces, he had 10,000 square foot mansions up in Montana, he had them on the beach, he had penthouses, he had everything he could ever want. And he tried sticking these things in his God-shaped hole he had expensive toys, private jets and yachts and, and polo, a stable of polo ponies. And there's his sports. And neither did lands or animals. So what happened was, is when he turned 60, he was most miserable. So then he said, I know, I'm going to start giving it away. How many think charity filled his gotcha hole? No, there's only one thing that fills a God shaped hole. That's God. Here we go. King Solomon and Ted Turner are not the only ones who try to fill their God shaped hole with stuff. You and I do it all the time. You know what the only difference is? Our stuff's cheaper. <laughs> How about us? Now, when I say us, who is my audience? High school kids. What do they try to fill their God shaped hole with? Maybe a trophy? right? a championship. What else? I know a diploma. A diploma will fit a God-shaped hole, right? Money. Do you think it really will? But they think it will. So let's think about who we're talking to. So work promotion and degrees. Nope. I've never found anyone that had letters after the name. They said, I've arrived and I'm happy and stay happy you can always find something that'll make you unhappy. How about family? Family. Some people think, oh, I'll get married and they'll fill the God-shaped hole. Listen, a spouse can never fill a God-shaped hole. If you get married thinking that spouse will fill your God-shaped hole, you're setting up your spouse for a huge disappointment. Deborah cannot fill my God-shaped hole, nor can I fill her God-shaped hole. Can't do it. Only one thing can fill a God-shaped Some people think, okay, a baby can fill my God-shaped hole. Babies don't fill a God-shaped hole. Somewhere around two years old, they got the cookie crumbs on their face. I didn't eat the cookie. They tell you that first heart Lie. Right there, just a dagger. Sports and entertainment. Whether it be the championships or your teams or handicap that's breaking 80 all the time, it just doesn't work. And then some people try to fill their God-shaped hole with drugs and alcohol. A bottle does not fill your God-shaped hole. You know what it really does? It just dulls your senses so you don't recognize it for a while, but it wears off, and pretty soon when you wake up, the you know, God-shaped hole is still missing, and there it is. And then finally, everybody thinks money and prestige can do it, but the answer is that cannot do it either. I never saw a dollar bill do it. Never saw gold, not a big IRA, a big retirement pension. It just, it just cannot fill the God-shaped hole. Only God can fill the God-shaped hole. Look at this verse. Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give them shall never thirst, John 4, 13. In other words, if it is a nice car, the nice car is going to get old. Mm -hmm. If it is a degree, and you finally get your bachelor's, you'll think, I need a master's. And then you'll think, well, I got a master's, I got to get the PhD, and then you get the PhD, and you go, what's next? What's next? It just, it just doesn't. There's always more. It just doesn't work that way. But you know what? God can fill your God-shaped hole. If you go for those worldly things, you will thirst again. It may take a year. may take two years. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, Philippians 4-7, and the Lord, with prayer and communion with Him. It's the only one that works. Okay. So that's one presentation I presented. What was unique about that? Was there doctrine there? Yeah, there was some doctrine. Was it doctrine that they probably hadn't heard before? Yeah, that that fall. Most folks don't understand the fall and the ramifications of the fall it does on us. And because that is there, we have a consequence we have to deal with, and it's that God-shaped hole. And we try sticking everything in the world but the kitchen sink but it doesn't fill a God-shaped hole. Only one thing fills a God-shaped hole, and that's God. Let's go to another one. This is the one that I'm going to try to present tomorrow. Not tomorrow, Tuesday night. Remember the two natures of man? Okay, who's my audience on Tuesday night? Um, There's three programs they have. They have one is the Homeless Overnight Program. The second one is the like, like a, they call it the Tabitho program. That would be an example of a, a woman that was battered and needed a place to flee. So she's there for about four or five months until she can get a house and get up and running in her family. And the third one is an addiction program, which is about an 18 month program. So I wanna talk about this dual nature. And my point is, is it's possible to stay on the clean and the right and arrow when you're at the homeless shelter every night. You're surrounded by tough rules, and you're surrounded by Christian leadership. But what happens as soon as you go away? You're back on the streets, and who's your influence? Why do I fall so quickly? That's my audience. So that's who I'm addressing. Now this lesson, we've We've done enough praying in here for the relatives of some of our members and daughters and sons and children and relatives that have had addiction problems. So you know where we're coming from, but maybe you've not experienced this in your family or direct result and know all the the drama of the fight and the battles they have within. This is who we're talking to. How can I remain steadfast and maintain my morality and keep my faith living away from the rescue mission? It's easy to do it when everybody's around. This message parlays perfectly into the college student. I'm in mom and dad's house. They're taming me to church. They're keeping control. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, uh, reporting to them. There's there's some accountability there. But as soon as I go to the way college, it's like, whew, how do I mean on the straight and narrow when when I'm away at college and I'm in the dorms and all that craziness is going on? How do I do that? Well, this is for this. Romans 7:21 through 23. This is paraphrased. When I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. Who's this? It's everybody. No, no, no. That's the people in the rescue mission. That's the people on the outside. That's No, it's everybody. How can that possibly be? Because of that fall. We have two natures. This was written by the apostle Paul. Paul, the one who wrote more two-testament scripture than anybody else, the one who planted more churches than anyone else, that had more sons in the ministry than anyone else. He's saying, I am struggling with a dual nature inside of me. How can that be? The fall? It's in the genes. We all have it? Yes, we all have it. The only one that doesn't have it was Jesus Christ because he bypassed the genetics. But anyone yet was born of a father and a mother, you got it. Just, just as sure as you're gonna grow old, is just as sure you're gonna have this battle, this dual nature. And you're gonna read that thing and you're gonna think, I belong on a psychiatrist's couch and he thinks I'm schizophrenic. And yeah, that's a pretty good description of who we are. Fighting that battle. When I want to do good, there's there's some of this, don't do it. And just in case you don't believe me, let me give you a second witness. Galatians 5 17, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to the one to, to the one to the other. So you cannot do the things you would do. That's exactly what Paul wrote in Romans 7. There is this fight going on with every child of God. Who's this written to? This is written to church members. It's not written to dead alien sinners or the pagans. It's written to members of this church at Galatia. So what does having two natures have to do with maintaining morality, keeping the faith, and remaining steadfast? Well, here's the illustrations. When I was talking to the high school kids, what illustrations did I use? I used Solomon, kind of tough to relate to, Ted Turner. Okay, There's three metaphors that I'm going to use, and then I'll move on to the third one. First one is, the clay pot. Scripture calls us a clay pot, and inside that clay pot is a spirit. Here is a passage. This is Second Corinthians 4, 6 and through 7. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. In other words, he's saying, This pot is made out of dirt. We're clay pots and inside these clay pots God has put his spirit two natures. Second witness 1 Corinthians 6:18 and 19 he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body what know ye not that your body is the temple of the holy ghost which is in you So there's another example of here's a clay pot and inside this clay pot is a Holy Spirit so when you partake of this sin you're making the Holy Ghost partake of it being subject to you too. And then one more, Matthew 6.10 Thy kingdom come thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. You know most Bibles say on earth. King James says in earth. May God's will be done in earth, in this clay pot. That was metaphor number one. Okay, let me give you a second metaphor. Let's go back to Cartoon Saturday. Now I find it interesting. If you go back and look at the old cartoons, every single cartoon at some time or another, I don't care if it's uh, Donald Duck or Mighty Mouse or whoever it is, but they always show these two little beings on your shoulder. And one's saying, do the right thing, do the right thing. And the other one's saying, no, don't do it, don't do it. And every, you don't find them in commercials like that anymore, or cartoons like that anymore. They just don't do it that way. But you have this battle going on. And there it is with Donald Duck. And there it is with Tom and Jerry. You'll see it there. Homer even has it, Homer Simpson. But you know what happened? Woe to them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness. It says, follow your heart, follow your feelings. And you know that religious celibate guy, that evil, wicked looking guy? He's the bad guy. No, what's going on? Not only do they say not the battle, when the battle's presented, evil's presented as good and good is presented as evil. That's the culture win. But metaphor number three, here's my favorite. It's the one I made up. I like to liken it to a flower box. And in that flower box, I'm going to put two plants. I'm going to put a tomato plant, and I'm going to put a kudzu vine. Imagine, you know, know, the old-fashioned flower boxes that are outside the window. The kudzu vine is going to engulf the tomato plant. To do nothing is to lose. So... What happens is, is you've got to nourish your tomato plant and pull out that old machete and whack away. How often do I have to whack it away? Every single day. If you don't, what happens is, is you're gonna get engulfed, okay? What happen, what helps tomatoes flourish? Well, in real life it's, um, you dig up the soil, you irrigate, uh, you give it some fertilizer, Nutrients, you water it, and then you whack back the enemies of the weeds. What helps saints flourish? Well, it's the same thing. Christ and prayer and worship and scripture. That's how we do ours. So think about it. Let's think about the college student, the kid that's in high school, that's around Christian teachers all the time, parents going to church every time. All of a sudden they go to college and they've got roommates and they've got people running up and down the hall, and none of them are going to church. You know, that's, that's how isolated. And I'm not reading my Bible and I'm not praying and I'm not hanging around with other Christians. Guess what happens? The kudzu vine engulfs it. To do nothing is to lose. And don't forget that machete. Scripture's catalog of people who stop nurturing their tomato plants. And then I've got all the verses, and here's some of these, and, and there's a whole slew of them about talking about cutting that. Put off the old man, cut it off, put, kill him, crucify him, mortify the deeds of the flesh. You know what that is? Machete, every single day. Boom, 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 boom. So let's stop. Who's the target audience? Folks at the rescue mission. What's their weakness? Getting away from Christians and getting on the street and being around street people. And what's happened? Well, I can handle it. No, you can't. Just like a tomato plant can't flourish unless you're whacking back that to kudzu vine every single day, and you're nourishing it, makes sure sunlight's going to the tomato plant. It's got to happen, or nothing will happen. Okay. That was number two. Got one more. this will be the shortest one. This is the one I did a week ago yesterday. Father. This was the fathering class. And fathers and fathering and I called it the four trimesters, And ladies know there is an extra three months of childbirth. I also included the time what the woman body goes through from birth to also three months because the adjustments there are just as drastic, but I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time that with you. Where did I start in the first message with, um, with the high school kids? I talked about that God-shaped hole. What did I start with with the rescue mission, those two natures? Where do you think I'm going to start with fathers? What's the fundamental thing that our, na- our, our, our culture is attacking? The difference between a man and a woman. I'm not going to do a wind. I'm not going to do an earthquake. I'm not going to do a fire. It's going to be a still small voice. Notice how we do this. Okay, think about my audience. I'm talking about young men probably in their early 20s. What do they relate to? Number one, I talked about specialization. Now, I wanna talk about the difference between men and women, but that's not where I'm gonna start. Look where I start. Start with football. I'm talking to 22 year old men, 23, 24, 25 year old men. And I talk and I go, look at that picture on the left. What you see there? You see a little halfback and you see a great big galoot of offensive linemen. They're not the same, they're different. What happened if you had a football team all made up of halfbacks? You're going to lose. What happens if you had a team all made up of offensive linemen? You're going to lose. You need different. Offense and defense, same difference. Okay, car dealership. Let's look at a car dealership. You've got that smooth, slick salesman. He's got one personality type. You also have an accountant. He's got a completely different personality type. And then you've got the mechanic who pretty much holds the whole place together. They're different. What happened if we had a dealership made up of all salesmen? What happens if you had a dealership made up of all accountants? What happened if you have a deal? See, one's not better than the other, they're just different. Okay, I'm starting to understand different. I can understand it in football, I can understand it in car dealership. How about in the school? You have the stereotype of the lit teacher, right? Jacket, patches on the elbow, smoking a pipe, that, that's my stereotype. And then you got the real cool gym teacher. And then you got the science teacher. I know these are gross stereotypes, but you know what, they're different. They're different, they're not the same. And one's not better than the other, it takes all of them to have a good functioning school that teaches all the programs. And then we go to a family. And you got dad, and dad is a protector and a provider. And you got mom, and mom is a nurturer and a comforter. And you know what our society says? The differences between the woman and the man are toxic. That's anything that's not nurturing and comforting is toxic. That's what the world's saying. And the answer's no. One's not better than the other. They're different, different is good. Just like difference, good on a football field, it's good in a business, it's good in a school, and it's good in a marriage. And then all you have to do is look at all the statistics about seeing young men and women that grow up without fathers, without providers and protectors. And you look at the difference rate in poverty, in education, and graduation rates, in, in, in incarceration rates, it's just off the roof. You gotta have different, or you're gonna lose the football game. And then I wrapped up with this, and I go, the majority of women need love and to feel secure. The majority of men need respect. And you go, wait a second. This was supposed to be a parenting class. Sounds like more like a marriage class. In utero, there's not a whole lot dad can do, but providing for and protecting mom is... One thing he can do prior to birth, when he protects and provides for his wife, he's protecting and providing for his unborn child. And loving his wife, he's making her for secure and he earns her respect. The best thing parents can do for their children is to have a strong marriage. And then I want into the physical differences between what happens in the first trimester, which she's going to experience, what to expect and how you can support her. What happens in the second trimester, what's going to happen to her body, what you can be prepared for and how you can support her. Third trimester, fourth trimester, it was all that kind of stuff. Let's go back to Elijah. And he had this rote message and he says, I'm it, everything depends on me. And God spoke to him in a still small voice. And then what did he do? He gave him what he needed in high school. You talk to them in a still small voice, and then you give them what they need. You give them the tools that they need. When you're talking about that God-shaped hole, when you're talking about the two natures, you got to give it to them in a still small voice. You teach it to them in a way they can understand it, then you give them the tools that can help address it. Recognizing the problem is half half the, the success. And then you're talking to fathers in the society we're living in, and you got to realize that this position is a very important position. And once they embrace that, they realize doing that and supporting a pregnant wife. You think I'm just doing nothing but a nursemaid. Well, for twelve weeks, twelve months, you are being a nursemaid. Own it. Yeah, but I don't understand what she's going through, and you won't understand what she's going through. Recognize it and deal with it. One of the things that how many people are on this planet? About eight billion right now. Every one of them are born the exact same way. This is nothing new. Own it. Take responsibility for it. I share this. I know I went. It's a different kind of a message. But I want you to know the kind of things that I'm trying to do as I represent this church. I also want you to start thinking about the way you share the hope that's within you. Look at the way God dealt with Elijah. But, but if Elijah kept saying the same old things, I know. Most people you talk to will say the same old things. And I don't think a wind and a fire and an earthquake is going to shake them out of it. It's the still, small voice. <laughs> what shook me up was some letters by a 22-year-old and some tattered pieces of paper. Wow, it hit me just right at the right time. That's what it's going to take for them. So let's turn off our wind and our fire and our earthquakes and let's try the still small voices and then try to help them in what they need, what they need.